0: Good afternoon and welcome to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg and we're live for an hour each weekday afternoon and taking your phone calls as usual. If you have questions about the Bible, about Christianity, about any of that stuff, you can always uh, call in here uh, Monday through Friday and we'll talk about those things with you, including today. Right now our lines are full, but I'm going to give you... uh, Uh, the number anyway, because if you call in a few minutes, you may find that the lines, or at least some lines, may have opened. The number to call is 844-484-5737. That's 844-484-5737. If my voice sounds like I'm on edge, not that I'm on edge, but the voice is on edge, it seems to be the case. I'm hoping that as the show goes on, My voice will clear. The truth is, I haven't really talked much since I woke up this morning. So my my throat still thinks that I just got up, even though I've been up for hours. Uh, So sometimes it needs to clear itself just through some um, activity. So I apologize if my voice is kind of on the uh, verge of uh, croaking or squeaking or whatever. But uh, we will get through her. At least I trust we will. Our first caller today is John from Dearborn, Michigan. John, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hello,
1: hello, um, Steve. I hope that you and your wife are both very well today.
0: Well, pretty good. Go ahead.
1: Okay, this question regards the Lord's Prayer. When it says... Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It sounds like a conditional forgiveness requiring that we have forgiven those who trespass against us because it's an equivalence as we forgive those who trespass against us. Is that how you understand this?
0: Yes. uh, Yes, it is. uh, Actually, because right after the prayer is completed in Matthew six, verse 14, Jesus makes this clear. He says, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive you your trespasses. So it seems obvious that he's uh, saying that is a condition.
1: Now, is it true that not every
0: interpreter
1: or teacher will agree with this position?
0: Well, you will find some uh, people who believe that the Sermon on the Mount is not relevant to us in this dispensation. They say it was uh, that the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus gave this instruction uh, is was was for a dispensation that was supposed to come but didn't, and that it was postponed, and now we're in a different dispensation. <clears throat> they say that we don't have the obligation to do what the Sermon on the Mount says uh, because it's not for us. I disagree with that. And, of course, Jesus taught this business about forgiving people on many other occasions. And in on those occasions, he also indicated that it's mandatory for us to forgive others. In Matthew 18, Jesus gave the parable about the man who was forgiven a great debt but for Refused to forgive a lesser debt from his fellow servant. And his master was angry with him and punished him for it. That's in Matthew 18, uh, 21 through 35. (coughs) Likewise, Mark chapter 11. Jesus said in verse 26, uh, well, verse 25 and 26, he said, Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. So it seems to be a, a repeated teaching of Jesus. Uh, if people say it's not a necessary thing, then I guess they'll have to take it up with him. I hope they get it sorted out before they face him. Because if they're planning on not forgiving somebody and, and getting by with it, when they see Jesus on the Judgment Day, that's going to be a late opportunity for them to try to uh, plead their their case with him. I think they might want to get it settled before that comes
1: so it sounds like in some respect that our salvation is dependent on our behavior our, our willingness to or our, our, our ability to do certain things regardless of our limitations in that regard
0: well we don't have any limitations on whether we can forgive or not I mean that's just a choice we make um, we either choose to forgive or we don 't. This is not something that strong people can do, and weak people can 't it 's simply a choice we make. am I going to let am I going to give up my right to hold a grudge? Am I going to give up my right to retaliate against somebody um, that 's my choice now, Of course, some people might say, but i 'm trying to forgive, but I still feel bad about what someone did. Well, the bible doesn 't say we can 't feel bad about what someone did. There's a lot of things I've done that I feel bad about. And there's things other people have done that I feel bad about. That has nothing to do with whether I forgive or not. Forgiveness is when I decide that I will not make it any uh, business of mine to retaliate or to hold a grudge. Uh, do I still feel badly about what someone did? Well, it, I, I very well may. Uh, and it may be something I'll feel badly about every time I think about it. But, it's not a question of what I feel. I can't command my feelings. That's not something that we have power over. If we were told that we have to feel a certain way in order to go to heaven, uh, we'd, we'd all be in trouble because we can't control how we feel. We can only control what we do. And what we do is we forgive. It's It's like forgiving a debt. If somebody owes you money and they say, I can't pay you, and you say, well, I forgive you. Well, that debt is canceled then. They don't owe you anything anymore. Now, might you someday afterwards say, Boy, you know, I I was awfully quick in forgiving that debt. I wish I hadn't done it. Well, it doesn't matter how you feel about it. You did it. The debt was canceled. And that's what you do. That's how God forgives us. That's how we forgive others. Um, uh, So, you know, it's not, not a question of whether we can do it or not. It's a question of whether we will do it or not. And what Jesus makes very clear is that we are asking God to forgive us far more than anyone has ever offended us with. We've done far more to offend God in our lives than anyone has ever done to us. And we expect God to freely forgive us, and he will. So, But how presumptuous that is, to think that that's the right thing for God to do, but it's not the right thing for me to do towards someone else. That's absurd. It just shows I don't believe what what I claim I believe. If we have received grace then we have grace, and we extend grace to others. That's simply the, f- the way that f- grace works in a person's life. So, Now, could we forgive
1: someone and want to have nothing to do with them ever again?
0: Well, we, we can forgive somebody uh, hoping that everything will be good, but realizing that it's not good, and that, uh, and that the person maybe is not the kind of person you want to trust. Trusting people is never required. The Bible never tells us to trust anybody except God. In fact, it warns us that trusting people is a <clears throat> can be disastrous. So um, we're not required to uh, trust somebody again if they are untrustworthy. But we are required to love them. And loving them means that we're not holding any grudge against them. And we wish them well. Um, But we can wish them well at the same time that we're not going to make ourselves vulnerable to to them because we know they can't be trusted.
1: Okay, thank you very much, Steve. Thank you.
0: All right. God bless you, John. Good talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for calling. Uh, Sandy from San Jose, haven't heard from you for a while. Welcome. Hi,
2: Steve. Always great to hear from you. Um, Quick note on forgiveness. Tim Keller, the late Tim, Tim Keller, wrote a great book called Forgive. Why should I and how can I? And for me, I read it and it was really helpful. That's an aside here. Hey, I'm I'm getting I'm on a binge with with A. W. Tozer right now. I'm just like Carol and I are doing audiobooks and just loving it. In his book, uh, Man's Pursuit of God or God's Pursuit of Man, he has he has a, a something I want to read. It says there's no need. There is. There is need to be no incompatibility between the deepest experiences of the spirit and the highest attainment of human intellect. It is required that the Christian intellect be fully surrendered to God and there be no limit to its activities beyond those imposed upon its own strength and size. When Carol and I heard this together, we looked at each other and we said, Steve Gregg, you know, Steve, this is a compliment to you. I think you're a very intelligent man, but I also think that you're fully surrendered to the best you can, and God bless you, my brother. Um, so that was partially what I called to say I got A.W. Tozer, and he spoke to me about you. So uh, keep on well, doing great work.
0: That's nice. You know, it's interesting because uh, I binged on Tozer back when I was in my early 20s, and that was 50 years yeah. ago, and I read and reread and reread Tozer. Uh that book you're reading used to be called uh, The Divine Conquest, and then it was re- after he died it was relabeled God's uh, Pursuit of Man. But it was a, considered to be a prequel to The uh, Pursuit of God. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I've read The Pursuit of God probably 20 times. Uh, uh, the book you're reading I've read probably um, at least half a dozen times, and, and most of the other Tozer works I've read uh, repeatedly. Uh, though not that much recently, but from time to time, I do listen to them on audiobooks, And uh sounds like that's true. But I will say that when I read Tozer, when I first read Tozer, I read him, <coughs> excuse me, I resonated with him. Uh, because hmm. he was saying things that not many preachers I was hearing were saying. But the kinds of things that I, that I like I said, I could resonate with. So uh, it's it's flattering to hear that uh, reading Tozer would, would in any way... Uh, remind you of me, but he kind of reminded me of me too. Although he's a much superior version. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, another point too
2: is you don't hear quote, Tozer quoted much in sermons or whatever. But you know, he was talking about how bad the church was what fifty, sixty years ago, and I think it's bad today. That is the institutional church. But let me get on to my question, Steve. Okay. I was listening to another uh, podcast, um, and we're talking about Israel specifically. Um What happened when Israel took over the land, and i 've heard you say, and i don 't want to put the words into your mouth. well, let me tell you what this person said, and see if I understood what you said because i don 't know what the truth is anymore. This person said that during whatever it was forty eight or forty nine when uh, whatever the u n did some kind of you know proclamation, or whatever, he said a lot of the uh, Palestinians were asked by other Arab nations to leave, and they did. And then when they came back, Israel wouldn't give them back their land. But I think I heard you say something, could be wrong, that that the Israelis kicked a lot of Palestinians out of the land. Um, and so I just, I trust your history better than I trust some of these podcasts. So if I misquoted you, let me know. But give me your best understanding of what happened to the Palestinians when the Jews uh, took over in '48.
0: Yeah, well, the Palestinians uh, were Arab people who had lived in that region well their ancestors and they had lived in it for 1300 years tended to think of it as their own land until the united nations pretty much gave it to israel and uh, of course the united nations divided it between israel and the native uh, palestinians and uh, and and yet as soon as the united nations did that there there came to be a civil war between uh, the israelis and the palestinians and both both were very aggressive toward each other. Um, mm-hmm. <coughs> both of them committed atrocities. Uh, there were terrorist terrorist activities on both sides. And it's very, very hard to make a simple summary of, you know, how things came down. But I will say this, that one of the first terrorist acts was done by Israel, uh, a terrorist organization under Menachem Begin called Irgun, and they attacked a little village called Dir Yassin. Uh, and, and slaughtered hundreds of uh, men, women and children, uh, mm-hmm. uh, who were non-combatants. Uh, the fear of that caused Palestinians in many villages to leave their farms and flee uh, to get out of the way, uh, with the understanding that once the danger was passed, they would come back to their farms again. Uh, generally, mm-hmm. that is the way it works in war. Uh, usually, in a time of war, people who are, become refugees flee, When the war ends, they're allowed to come back to their homes. Uh, In this case, they weren't. They weren't allowed to. The Israelis, in many cases, bulldozed their homes. In many cases, they occupied their homes and their farms. And lots of times, Mm -hmm. the owners of those farms, the the Palestinian owners, were only, you know, several thousand feet away, uh, starving in in the cold outdoors uh, while somebody else was uh, occupying their farms. Um, and this, this of course, made them uh, has has caused a lot of bad blood to exist. Now, lots of terrorism has gone on. We hear mostly mm-hmm. about uh, Palestinian terrorism, and it's probable. I don't know the facts. I mean, I don't know the details, but it's probable that the Palestinians do more acts of terrorism now than the Israelis, uh, because uh, terrorism is a resort of desperate people. The is- Israelis are not as desperate. They've got a settled country. They've got uh, you know organized military. They've they're prosperous, <coughs> one of the most prosperous countries in the world, and uh, relatively secure, even though they're surrounded by enemies. And uh, the Palestinians, uh, in many cases, are the opposite of those. They're not prosperous. They're not settled. They don't have a, an organized military and so forth. So uh, they often resort to terrorism, which is not a good thing. I mean, I'm not saying that's okay at all. That's terrible. Uh, right. But there's been some terrible deeds on both sides, and it's very hard Simply to say, this side is in the right, or that side is in the right. Now, did did the Pal- did the Arab nations encourage the Palestinians to flee before yeah, Israel? Um, <clears throat> yes, you do hear that this is true. Now, I've also read, and you never know who to believe because you're hearing. If you go on in the right. internet, you hear information from all kinds of sides, and you wonder what's true. Um, but I've also read that um, radio signals, uh, international radio signals, were monitored in the Middle East, uh, by the U.S. during that whole period of time, and no one ever Mm -hmm. picked up any radio transmissions from Arab nations telling the Palestinians to flee. That's what I read. Mm -hmm. Now, am I right or wrong? I don't know. I mean, I am right in saying that's what I read. I'm not sure if what I read is right. Got it, got it, got it. And um, thank
2: you, Stephen. One last thing, and I'll let you get to the next one. You oftentimes people call your program saying, what's a good church to go to, what's a good church to go to, and you give good advice. I think the one you're leaving out is Bible Study Fellowship. It's not an institutional church, but it's the best deal in town because you go online, you talk to people, you read the Bible, you discuss the Bible. You don't just get a lecture. And I think it's a very valid ministry, and in some sense it is a church. So just my three advice to listeners, it's just so good. It's just not, you're just not hearing a lecture from a
0: guy in a pulpit. You're communicating. So anyway, my
2: advice. I will agree
0: with you. I'll agree with you that Bible study fellowship is uh, a very good fellowship. Uh, Obviously, they're dispensational and they have some other views I might not believe, but that's not a problem to me. That's not a problem to me. They are uh, are, uh, more than average zealous people who get together weekly and and talk about the Bible. and, And for people who are looking for like-minded uh, fellowship. And by like-minded, I don't mean people who have the same doctrines necessarily, but people who have the same zeal for study of the Word and seeking Christ. I think, that, I think that those people who attend Bible study fellowship are going to find a lot of people that, they, that their, their hearts can uh, bond with in that way. And, of course, it is edifying to study the Bible together, even if uh, some, some of them see, uh, see some passages differently. Yeah, and for those who are listening, it's Bible Study Fellowship
2: International. Google it. We have online and all that. So, anyway, Steve, thank you so much. Keep on doing the great work. We, we, we love what you're doing and very much appreciate it. And, and I hope you walk away with a compliment on Tozer uh, for you. Take care, my friend.
0: Thank you, Sandy. Good talking to you.
2: Take care. Bye-bye.
0: God bless. Okay, our next caller is uh, Chris from Ridgefield, Washington. Chris, welcome.
3: Oh, hi, Steve. Thank you for taking my call and, um, just for your faithfulness and keeping up your ministry. It's, uh, I've learned a lot from you. Um, yeah. Anyways, uh, my question today, I wrote it out and I will try to be succinct with it. Um, it is, what does the Bible say about setting boundaries with people when it comes to them asking for help? And are we called to always help anyone that asks for it, even if they put themselves in a not good position?
0: Well, first of all, thanks for writing that question out. Lots of people should do that because it can be more succinctly uh, presented. I appreciate that. Um, As far as boundaries are concerned, the Bible doesn't really talk about putting up boundaries. I know there's some Christian books that talk about boundaries. And I'm not saying that what those Christian books say uh, are wrong. It's just that the Bible doesn't use that term. As far as helping people, there are uh, hyperbole in the, in the New Testament where Jesus would say things like, um, give to everyone who asks you. But we know that's hyperbole. means, you know, it's, it's not really, literally, something you can always do or should do. For example, you shouldn't give your children everything they ask for. That'd spoil them. Uh, there are people who are also extremely irresponsible who won't work and just want to live off, uh, you know, uh, generosity of other people. Well, the Bible says, no, you shouldn't be generous toward those people. Those who don't work should not eat. There's also people who, you know, ask for money, and you know very well what they use it for, and it's something that, that's not good for them or, or pleasing to God. And so you obviously don't want to enable them. So there's a lot of people that you would not uh, you would not be wise to help in ways that they are asking to be helped. Now, you might be able to help them in other ways or not. It depends on how much they're willing to be. But the main thing is we should be prepared to do what is best for every person. Uh, the assumption that somebody asks for uh, uh, a donation, uh, which Jesus is talking about, but, you know, the, the beggars in Israel who were typically uh, disabled people because it was shameful to be a beggar, a person who was not disabled would be ashamed to beg. And even those who were disabled were ashamed to beg, but they had no other choice. So the idea that Jesus says, you know, anyone who asks you, he means any beggar, help them. Uh, Even that, even if the person's totally worthy of your help, there would be times when you can't even do that because you don't have the money, or you might have money that's uh, obligated to be used for something else. You might have somebody else's money on you. you. Obviously, there's times when you can't help somebody, even if they're worthy. The point here is, that we are to be um, committed to the well-being of everybody that we know and everyone we meet, and uh, and even people we don't meet. We should be, our our desire would be that we could uh, make, uh, you know, the best of all circumstances holistically for everyone on the earth. Now, that's not only in financial ways. Sometimes a person, uh, if you give them money, It'll damage them spiritually uh, for various reasons. But, of course, if someone's really needy and disabled and can't work or whatever, then giving them money is no doubt something that should be done if you, to your ability. But um, when you talk about boundaries, I, it sounds like maybe you're talking about there's somebody in your life that crosses those boundaries uh, regularly asking for help, and you're not so sure that they need it that much or that they should need it. Um, Obviously, there are times when you have to cut somebody off, realizing that you're just enabling them to live an irresponsible life. Now, cutting them off in cases like that doesn't mean you're not wishing the best for them. You're wishing the best for them because you're wishing for them to stop living the irresponsible life. Living an irresponsible life is not good for anybody, and that's not pleasing to God. So if you know somebody who's doing that and that your assistance to them is only uh, enabling them to keep doing that, then you're not doing something that's good for them or pleasing to God, Uh, sometimes to withhold help. And in in its place, give some counsel about how they could uh, get out of that circumstance by, you know, some choices that they can make is a far more loving thing to do. And so, again, there's the the idea of boundaries, uh, as it's spoken of in in popular speech today, uh, is not found in the Bible. But certainly wisdom is and uh, and doing what's best for other people. And uh, and a lot of times doing what's best for other people is to say to them, no, no, I've helped enough. It's time for you to, to you know, take responsibility for yourself now. Um, but knowing when that's necessary would depend on knowing things about each case. And I can't address each case because I don't know things about each case, but I, I would say that you... If you are ever, um, if God ever considers you responsible to do something, we'll not expect that of you if you don't know anything about the case or if you don't know enough about the case to make a wise decision. Remember that the, the, the time we have that we can use in assisting people and the money we have that could be used in assisting people is God's money and God's time, which means we should be very happy to give it, to somebody if that's what's really going to help them. But if we give it to somebody and it's only going to um, do them harm or, or prevent them from doing the next thing that God wants them to do themselves, uh, well, then then it's a bad stewardship. It's a bad stewardship of time and money to help in those case ways. So life is full of decisions, and that's the kind of decision that we have to make from time to time is is this particular person who's asking for help will it really be to their advantage is it really what god wants for them that i assist them in this way and sometimes the answer will certainly be yes and other times probably it will be no so you just you have to use discretion and that's the most i can say about that
3: thank you so much steve um yeah my my wife and i just got married a few months ago and uh, we have We've just been uh, trying to seek wise counsel and seek the Lord because, you know, we want to honor him and help others. But like you said, uh, we've just been trying to find the balance between wisdom and loving people.
0: Yeah, since you're a new married couple, I suggest that you and she consider together and discuss together as often as possible. Anything that you would either of you would do to to assist someone outside the household, because you're going to be doing that uh, with with uh, resources that belong to both of you. Hey, I appreciate your call. I uh, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Narrow Path. We have another half hour coming up. We're not done. Uh, But we are listener-supported. If you'd like to write to us, the address is The Narrow Path, P.O. Box 1730, Temecula, California, 92593. Our website is thenarrowpath.com. I'll be back in 30 seconds.
1: Small is the gate, and narrow is the path that leads to life. We're proud to welcome you to The Narrow Path with Steve Gregg. Steve has nothing to sell you today, but everything to give you. When today's radio show is over, we invite you to visit thenarrowpath.com, where you'll find topical audio teachings, blog articles, verse-by-verse teachings, and the archives of all the radio shows. Study, learn, and enjoy. We thank you for supporting the listener-supported Narrow Path with Steve Gregg.
0: Welcome back to the Narrow Path Radio Broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, and we're live for another half hour taking your calls. If you'd like to join us, and if you have questions about the Bible or the Christian faith, you can call me at this number, 844-484-5737. I need to announce that uh, next week I'm going to be uh, coming up to the uh, Central Valley of California, and I'll be speaking in a number of places between uh, next Wednesday and the following Tuesday. And uh, those places include, if you're listening in, in any of these areas, uh, Clovis, Roseville, Oakhurst, Fresno, and Auburn, which is in the Sacramento area. Uh, I'm going to be in those places uh, next week, beginning Wednesday and uh a different place each night pretty much. Uh a couple pla uh, I think a couple nights in one place. But um again that's in Clovis, Roseville, Oakhurst, Fresno, and Auburn are different locations. I'll be speaking over a period of about seven days. Um, one of those events, which is a week from this Sunday, is in Fresno and I'll be speaking at the North Point Bible Institute. Um and it's open to the public, but you have to register for it. It's uh, gonna be on a Sunday afternoon from four o'clock to seven thirty and I'll be speaking on the four views of Revelation. So uh if that interests you, that's in Fresno a week from this Sunday, that is January twenty first. And if you're interested in uh registering to come to that, I don't I don't think there's any cost to it. Um you can go on our website. You can see all of these locations and times at our website, thenarrowpath.com. Thenarrowpath.com and look under announcements. Okay, let's talk next to Carrie uh, from Texas. Carrie, welcome.
4: Hey, Steve, I got two questions. Uh, first of all, uh, dispensationalists divide the Bible up into seven dispensations. It- is that valid?
0: Well, not necessarily. I mean, uh, what? What? I mean, they they divide history. Are you speaking? I can't tell you. Some noise, anyway. Oh, okay, there's some noise. I'm going to put you on hold here. Um, they divide history into seven dispensations, and uh, by dispensations they mean divisions, which begin and end in uh, in specific ways. They believe each dispensation begins with God making a covenant with people, and the dispensation ends with them violating that covenant, coming under judgment, and then another covenant is made, a new dispensation starts. They believe this has happened seven times, at least uh, classic dispensationalism taught, that the period from the creation to the fall was the first dispensation. They call it the dispensation of innocence. The second dispensation was from the fall to the flood, which they called the dispensation of conscience. Then from the flood to Abraham, they consider the dispensation of government. From Abraham to Moses was, uh, they would say, the dispensation of promise. And from Moses to Jesus, the dispensation of the law. From Jesus, uh, essentially from Pentecost on uh, through, they would say, to the rapture of the church, is the dispensation of grace or the age of the church. And then uh, then there's the age of the kingdom in the millennium, which is uh, inaugurated, I guess, uh, through the seven-year tribulation, and then there's the millennium. Now, is this a valid way of looking at things? Well, you can look at history and divide it up as many different ways as you want to. These, these certainly are uh, events that introduce uh, something new, in each case, although you could certainly make more of them, you could have the, uh, you know, the the dispensation from uh, Saul to Rehoboam would be the dispensation of the United Monarchy of Israel, um, you know, and then, you know, the next uh, what 180 years or so, or 280 years or so, that you you'd have the uh, the uh, divided kingdom. Dispensation and so forth. I mean, there's different things happen at different times and you can pick which ones you want to and and place a period between them and the next one you want to choose and call that a dispensation. The Bible doesn't use that terminology. Now, the word dispensation has been used a long time before there were dispensationalists. The dispensationalist scheme arose through John Nelson Darby in uh, in the 1830s. But long before that, early Christian writers used the term dispensation. They just didn't have the same dispensational scheme as Darby did. Normally, they would speak of two dispensations, uh, the dispensation of the law and the dispensation of Christ, of their grace. And uh, that was, or or we could say the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. That would be the way that the word dispensation was usually used among ancient Christian writers. Uh, Darby simply identified more dispensations and, uh, and made that point uh, a, a very important basis of his theological system. By the way, he didn't ever call his system dispensationalism. The term dispensationalism was coined after Darby was dead uh, by an anti-dispensationalist named Philip Morrow. He seems to be the first one to have ever used the term dispensationalism to speak of that system, which he was critical of. But it has been adopted uh, by dispensationalists, they call themselves by that name now. So um, as far as whether you, that's a, a, a valid way to d- divide history, like I said, it's a little bit arbitrary because you could divide history between any starting place and stopping place as a, as a given uh, division. Uh, dispensationalists happen to use seven different ones. I, I'm sorry. You had another question, didn't you? Hello, uh, Carrie. I'm I'm sorry. I have got the wrong. I I hit a wrong button. I'm sorry. I hope I didn't ruin things. Carrie, I'm sorry. I hit a wrong button. Are you still there? All right. Can you hear me? Yes. Right. Said, you had another uh, question.
4: Yes. Uh, kind of along those lines. Ephesians 1.10, uh, we had a Bible study the other day, and the leader was kind of indicating that he was thinking that this was uh, indicating the uh, second coming of Christ and the rapture of the church, uh, and I didn't see it that way. I saw it as more of a consummation of all things, the redemption of all creation and, and whatnot. Could could you give me your take on Ephesians 1.10?
0: Yeah, uh, Ephesians one ten, Paul says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. Um, this, I believe, refers not specifically to the second coming of Christ, although some feel that it won't happen until the second coming of Christ. So, in other words, this gathering together of all things into Christ is thought by many, to take place at the second coming of Christ and to exist forever afterward. But there are some who would say, uh, and this might be the post who would say, well, this is what God is doing and has been doing for the past 2,000 years and will continue to do as more and more people are converted and brought into the body of Christ uh, and, and reconciled with him, uh, that this will keep going on. Uh, until Jesus comes back, but it, but many believe it will have been achieved to a high degree uh, before Jesus comes back. Uh, Paul is not specifically mentioning Jesus coming back in this passage. He's talking about what God's purpose is, what he purposes to accomplish. The question of whether it will be accomplished before Jesus comes back or only because Jesus comes back, and at that point, um, would be a separate issue that would this verse I don't think would make clear. Um, and I would say this too that to a premillennialist, I don't even think the second coming of Christ would bring this about because the premillennialist believes that after Jesus comes back, there's still going to be another rebellion of a great number of nations, as the sand of the seashore for multitude, coming against him uh, at the end of the millennium. So obviously, not all things would have been gathered into him at that point. Uh, there's still many who are at odds with him and rebel against him. So uh, perhaps if you were pre-millennial, rather than saying this will happen at the second coming of Christ, we might say it would happen at the end of the millennium in the new heavens, and the new earth and the new uh, Jerusalem. <clears throat> so uh, to me, I don't think Paul is identifying the second coming of Christ here. Uh, even if we would say, uh, well, this is going to happen at the second coming of Christ. I mean, I I would not be uh, I would not be opposed to that suggestion. But Paul doesn't say that that's the case, and that's not he's not speaking about the second coming per se. He's just saying, this is what God's purpose is to do. Whether he'll do it at the second coming of Christ, before the second coming of Christ, or even a thousand years after the second coming of Christ, as the premillennialists would say, um, that is not. No hint is given of that in the passage because he's not thinking specifically of that event, but only of the result.
4: Is there a, uh, uh, any, uh, the word times is used as a plural instead of a singular. Is that relevant to anything?
0: Well, I think the word times would be similar to the word ages, ages or seasons and things like that. Um, You know, Jesus said it's not if you know the times or the seasons and so forth. It just times would refer to period of time, just like seasons does. Um, When he uses the word dispensation, he says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, the word dispensation, the Greek word uh, behind it means the management of a household or or it's often better translated stewardship. And so a, a more literal, possibly more literal interpretation would be that in the stewardship of the fullness of times, he will gather together into one all things in Christ. That is the way that he manages his household, the way he stewards the universe or the or human history, uh, you know, in the in the present time, to- in the uh, prop at the proper time, this will have been accomplished. Is what uh, all I think he's saying there. Thank you, Steve. Okay, Kerry, thanks for your call. All right, our next caller is, uh, let's see, it's Brian from Colorado Springs. Uh, uh, by the way, we might be able to get uh, you might be able to get through before the half hour is over. If you call this number, 844 484 Brian, welcome to The Narrow Path.
5: Hi, Steve. Thank you. Um, my men's Bible study uh, just finished the book of Joshua, and we're going to spend two, maybe three weeks talking about um, a topic suggested by one, one of my friends in the study. And, and he, the, the topic is Israel, Are They Still God's Chosen People? Kind of inspired by recent events and and uh what we read in joshua but um he's going to be presenting what i think is kind of a stereotypical um dispensational view and i'm going to present the uh the other view uh or another view i guess And and i was wondering if you'd listen to my summary of the other view and see if you agree with it or would add to it or if it's if it's I don't know. I'm just trying to... I think a lot of guys in the group probably haven't heard an, an, mm-hmm. an other view, a different well, view. So You mean you want to give that summary right now? Yeah, I'm going to give you a brief summary. I try to make it brief and succinct, and I don't want to leave anything out, but I don't want to make it... I don't know. I don't want to miss anything important, too. So I don't if you would comment on this, if I could read it briefly to you.
0: Okay, if it's brief, go no. Um
5: Yeah. Uh, so, in the Old Testament, we see that God chose a group of people descended from Abraham and eventually described primarily using the label of Israel, with whom... Mm. To make multiple covenants, the primary but not only promise of these covenants was that God would produce a Messiah through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. With the coming of Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, through his life, death, and resurrection, all the promises God made in these covenants were finally fulfilled. Not only that, Jesus initiated the new covenant, one that was prophesied in the Old Testament, one that made the old covenants obsolete. Additionally, Jesus and the apostles taught that having a physical lineage that traces back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob slash Israel isn't actually what makes someone a, quote, son of Abraham or true Israelite, and a careful look at the Old Testament reveals that it actually never has been. In the new covenant established by Jesus, God invites anyone who will trust in Jesus to join his chosen people where there is no Jew or Gentile and all are one in Christ.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree with everything in that summary. I would I'd bring up a couple of things, perhaps. And that is, um, if we say, if we're asking the question, is Israel, that is, ethnic Israel, are they still God's chosen people? The question would be, well, chosen for what? Yeah. Uh, well, what are we talking about them being chosen about? Now, what the Bible clearly says in the Old Testament is God chose them to be the ones through whom the Messiah would be brought into the world. We don't read of them being chosen for anything else, just that. Now, they did they did bring the Messiah into the world as he came through them, which means that God's choice of them uh, was successful and mission accomplished. Now, ever since Jesus has come, if someone wants to say they're still chosen, I'd say, okay, well, what are they chosen for now? Um you know, if they if they accomplish the only mission they were ever ch- said to be chosen for, what mission do they have now? Now there are dispensationalists who say, well, yeah, in the last days Israel's going to have a play a role that is unique to them. But you can't really find anything in the Bible that says that since Jesus came, the Jews are going to do something that you know Gentiles can't do. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile in Christ. There's a middle wall of partitions been broken down. Any believing Jew is in the body of Christ along with you and me. And any unbelieving Jew is not saved and certainly not chosen to be God's instrument. So um, if we're talking about ethnic Israel as a race, uh, I just say, well, if you want to know if they're chosen, I'd say, well, chosen for what? I don't know of anything they're chosen for. Now, I'd also point this second thing out when we read of the promises made to Abraham. And then those that are made through Moses, well, are well, well, made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then later uh, to Moses, through Moses. and then there were promises made to David and so forth. Uh, these promises that God made to them, none of them mention anything about what we call salvation. For example, none of them speak specifically about life after death. None of them speak about going to heaven. Abraham was not told that he or his offspring would go to heaven. Uh, neither was Moses. Moses didn't tell the Israelites that they'd go to heaven if they kept the covenant. Uh, the promises God made were not that they would be uh, saved in the sense that we think of that term. And if he didn't make those promises to them in the Old Testament, uh, is there any reason for believing that those promises apply to them in the New Testament? Where did God in the New Testament tell the people of Israel that they will be saved? What I do find in the Old and the New Testament about salvation is that in Isaiah chapter 10 in verse 22, which is quoted by Paul favorably in Romans 9:27, God said, though the children of Israel be as numerous as the sand of the seashore, only the remnant will be saved. In other words, there's a lot of people, children of Israel, who aren't saved and are not going to be saved. And no promise of salvation is made to them. The promise is that the faithful remnant, Will be saved. Now, in the Old Testament, it's not clear what "saved" would have meant to them. But when Paul quotes it in Romans 9:27, he clearly is thinking of salvation in the sense that we think of it—saved in Christ. Now, Mm -hmm. therefore, there is no promise made to the ethnic Israel anywhere that they would be saved. The Old Testament doesn't say they'll be saved, and the New Testament says only a small remnant of them will be saved. And Paul in Romans 11 says and that has happened he says even now Romans 11:5 he says even now there is a remnant of Jews who are saved you know according to the uh, election of grace so so it would seem to me that we need to ask chosen for what and if we read the promises of God made Abraham there's no promise of anyone being saved in the sense we think of a salvation uh, what he's chosen for is that his seed Will bring blessing to the nations, and that seed, according to Paul in Galatians 3, is Jesus. So that's how I would understand it, um, and I and I don't think anyone could find any way to refute that.
5: Would you say? So I think my friend will emphasize. Just you know, we just finished Joshua. That maybe the land of promise is still remains somehow. What's a well? I,
0: w- well, I guess we have to ask: Did they fulfill the the conditions for that? I mean, the, the promises of the land are made to them uh, conditionally. Here's what God said to them in Leviticus uh, 18, before they went in and took the land from the Canaanites. He said, do not defile yourselves. This is uh, Leviticus 18:24 through 28. Do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for by these all the nations, meaning the Canaanites, are defiled, which I'm casting out before you. For the land is defiled, therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inheritance. And then he says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, Israel, and shall not commit any of these abominations. He says in verse 28, Lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it, as it has vomited out the nations that were before you. Now he said, Canaanites had the land, But God caused the land to vomit them out because they did abominable things. He says, now I'm letting you go in there, Israel, but the land will vomit you out too, like it did the Canaanites, if you do abominable things. The question then would be, did they? Did they do those abominable things? And did the land vomit them out? I guess we just have to look at history and ask those questions. Certainly the Old Testament answers it, and so does the New Testament. They didn't Mm -hmm. keep God's covenant. Now, also in Deuteronomy 28 God mentions all the blessings that would come upon Israel if they keep this covenant. Verses 1 through 14, Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 14, lists these many blessings that would come upon them. But at verse 15, he begins to say, But it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Then he lists curse after curse after curse after curse, and among them, is in verse 63, it says, And it shall come to pass that just as the Lord rejoiced over you to do you good and multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and bring you to nothing, and you shall be plucked from the land which you go to possess. Now, I guess the question then we'd have to ask from the Old Testament and from history, did Israel break that covenant or did they keep the covenant? Once we answer that, we'll know whether... They were plucked from the land as a judgment act of God. Now, God didn't ever say that they would keep the land unconditionally. So if we say, well, what about now? There's people, there's Israelites in the land now. You know, is it theirs unconditionally? Well, let me ask, are they keeping the covenant? The land goes with the covenant. God made it very clear. You break the covenant, you lose the land. Now, are they keeping the covenant now? First of all, the the nation of Israel isn't keeping even the old covenant, much less the new covenant. The new covenant is made in Christ. And only, you know, a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of of the Jews in Israel are, are actually following Christ. So they're not in the covenant with God. They're not even keeping the old covenant. And therefore, I guess we have to say, well, then on what basis scripturally would they have the right to take this land from somebody else, for example? Now I'm not against Israel having the land. I just want to make that very clear. I'm not. I'm not against them having their own homeland. I'm not against anybody having their own homeland. I'm certainly not against the Palestinians having their own homeland. I think, I think it's nice for every group to have their own homeland. But the question of whether Israel has the right to go and seize land from somebody else against their will, um, so that they can have it, just because they claim to have a divine right to it, I guess. In evaluating that claim, I guess well, where whence is the divine right? Where is there mentioned in in the Bible a divine right for anyone to have that land who's in violation of God's covenant? And that would probably be the Mm -hmm. the question to ask.
5: Right, right. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Steve. Appreciate your insight.
0: All right. I appreciate your call. Good luck with that. (laughs) Uh, Karen from Memphis, Tennessee. Welcome (laughs) to the Narrow Path
3: hi Steve how are you good thanks I I wrote you recently um, I was the one that had found in the scriptures uh, where Paul was saying that he was the first as a pattern and I said well he must have been the first broken off branch regrafted into the tree
0: well he wasn't the first Uh, Peter and, and you know and others I mean, lots of Jews. Lots of Jews got saved on the day of Pentecost and were grafted in that tree before Paul was saved. But but he uh, he he said that he was the first uh, before many others, not necessarily the absolute first, but the first before many others that God's mercy would be shown to uh, because he had been a persecutor of the church. But what would your question be today? And there's noise on your line, so
3: I typed it out for you. Okay, if Christ is the true Israel. And the 12 tribes entered into the Mosaic Covenant at Sinai, which was a marriage covenant. Could we see Jacob being given the name Israel as a betrothal to that marriage contract? Like the oneness where God called their name Adam?
0: Well, that's a that's a curious question. Um, Jacob and Israel are interchangeable names, originally of the same man. Uh, the man Jacob was uh, wrestled with God all night and was renamed uh, Israel. But then even after that, he was often called Jacob and often called Israel. They were simply he had two names now um, interchangeably. And uh, just like uh, Peter, Simon, Peter, sometimes called Simon, sometimes Peter, even though Jesus said, uh, I'm going to call you Peter. he is still called Simon after that uh, in the New Testament sometimes as well. Uh, so I don't know if there's a if we can make any difference between the name Jacob and Israel significantly and I don't know that I don't know how that would necessarily be seen as a betrothal uh of marriage certainly God made a covenant with Abram and renewed it with Isaac and Jacob and and a covenant God's covenant with his people is analogous to a marriage covenant the Bible makes that very clear um But uh, when it comes to, you know, God made a covenant with them uh, and it's like marriage. I don't know if we could see any particular stage of that, uh, at least in the naming of Jacob as Israel, as uh, specifically betrothal. So, I mean, I I guess one could privately hold a view like that. But I don't know that we'd be able to, in any sense, uh, provide a a scriptural uh, defense for that particular outlet. Uh, Fred from. Oh, I'm out of time. I was going to take another call. Uh you're listening to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Greg and we are live Monday through Friday. So uh, this is Friday we won't be talking on the air again until Monday so keep your questions handy and call in on Monday. Uh The Narrow Path is a listener supported ministry. There are no commercial breaks because there's no sponsors and we don't sell anything either. You can't buy anything from us at our website or over the air. We don't we don't advertise products or sell them. We do however pay a lot of money to radio stations to stay on the air. And we do that because listeners who want us to stay on the air will send uh, you know, contributions to help us pay those bills. If you'd like to do that, you can write to The Narrow Path, P.O. Box 1730, Temecula, California, 92593. Or you can do that from our website where everything's free, thenarrowpath.com. Thanks for joining us.